the city of San Miguel de Allende is often described as one of the most beautiful pueblos in Mexico. There is something very magical about Mexico. The feeling in the air and the light and the festivals and the people. There is something that it's hard to put your finger on. Coming up, we hear why it's attracting a lot of expats and retirees. In Italy, there's a good reason why it's hard to find a mediocre meal. Everyone is a forager. Everyone has a garden if they possibly can. Everyone's at the market buying the primo produce. Frances Mays shares what she admires most about the culinary practices of Italy. We'll also hear why people in Scotland are talking again about independence from the UK. The problem we have in Scotland is we have an identity crisis within ourselves at times. I always argue it's not anti-English, it's just pro-Scottish. And get ready for the Olympic Games with a torchlighting ceremony in Greece. We shouldn't be calling it the Olympic flame, but the Olympic light. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. They're about to light the Olympic flame at the site of the ancient games on Mount Olympus in Greece. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how the flame ceremony got started, just in time for the passing of the torch to Fukushima, Japan, for this summer's games in Tokyo. Friends from Scotland joined us a little later in the hour to explain why many Scots are talking again about splitting off from England, and to tell us how their Scottish identity can be at odds with the rest of the United Kingdom. Plus, Francis Mays of Under the Tuscan Sun joins us in just a bit to whet our appetites for the great regional food specialties you'll find across Italy, where she promises it's hard to find a bad meal. Let's open the hour with a look at a Mexican destination that's been attracting a lot of Americans and Canadians. The city of San Miguel de Allende is known as a colorful art center. Expats find it an attractive and affordable place to retire and make up about 10% of the population. San Miguel is about a five-hour bus ride north of the capital, and it was important to Mexico's independence from Spain in the early 19th century. Julie Mead first visited San Miguel in 2004 to help run a fine arts gallery. She returned a year later to take up residency in Mexico City. She currently writes the Moon Guidebooks to both Mexico City and San Miguel de Allende. Julie, what do you think's making San Miguel such a popular destination with expats and retirees? Well, I think for everyone it's different, but some things, I think, entrance everyone. One is, it's a beautiful city. It's an absolutely beautiful city. It was built with all of the money from the silver mines that were booming in the north of Mexico during the colonial era. So it's filled with gorgeous churches and old colonial era mansions. And then another thing about it is that today, it still feels very old-fashioned. You know, it's Mm -hmm. got a central plaza where people meet, they know each other's names. Mm. You go back to the same restaurant, they remember you. It feels like, I don't know, going to another era, sort of. Mm. Something we've all dreamed about being able to have today, and you almost can't find it anywhere else. I think that's a lot of it. You call it in your book quintessentially Mexican. What what does quintessentially (laughs) Mexican mean? Well, I guess in a way, I mean that in a sort of cinematic way. It's what you would picture if you picture old Mexico, you know, mariachi bands on the plaza, old cantinas where you can drink some tequila and these beautiful old church bells ringing through the night. Tacos, Um, tamales, people taking the siesta, all those cliches. And festivals. Festivals are a big deal in San Miguel. They are. There are festivals all year long. People there claim, and I think it's a dubious claim, but they claim that they have the most festivals of any town in Mexico. One in particular that's amazing is the Dia de San Miguel, which is the Saint's Day for Mm. St. Michael, and that's in September. I think if there's one festival, sometimes the festivals can be uh, good and bad. You get a lot of crowds for them. It Mm -hmm. can be uh, 
a little bit of a headache if you're there during a festival, but the Dia de San Miguel is worth the effort. It's a beautiful festival. People come from all over Mexico to pay homage to St. Michael. There's folkloric dancing. There are charros on horseback, uh, parades, fireworks all night. It's mm. just absolutely colorful, beautiful, colorful, I mean, so the, colorful. The, the cover of your book is just an explosion of color, and it's all real. It's just flags and banners and people just embracing life. There's that term, Mexico Magico. Is that a, mm-hmm. is that a, a slogan cooked up by the tourist board? <laughs> well, I think the tourism board likes that slogan, yeah. but um, it's not just them. There is something very magical about Mexico, uh, about the feeling in the air and the light and the festivals and the people. There is something that it's hard to put your in finger on. In the case on. of San Miguel, a lot of it might be the local art scene because there's just lots going on that way, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And for a long time, it's been an artist community since the beginning of the 20th century. And nowadays, there's still art schools, lots of artists that live there, a lot of little galleries. So that's a really fun part of visiting San Miguel. And I really recommend when people come to visit that they pick up a copy of the local English language newspaper, Mm -hmm. which is called Atención, because in there they have a listing of everything going on. And there's always tons of gallery openings Mm -hmm. and events, arts events, talks, things you can go to. It's a really fun way to interact with the community from day one. You can just show up anywhere and you're always welcome in San Miguel. You know, if I have a, if I have an American friend who's going to retire in Mexico and take a humble retirement and turn it into a relatively lavish retirement, more often than not, they seem to end up in San Miguel. What is it about San Miguel that is such a popular place for expats to become expats? <laughs> well, I think, well, you know, people feel comfortable there because there's such a long history of a lot of expats there. Uh, people started moving to San Miguel back in the 1940s. The art school there actually could be paid for with the GI Bill. So a lot of people after World War II moved down there and got their art school paid for, and they never left. So the word got out. There was a big you know, newspaper story or magazine story in Life magazine, I think. And even more people came when they saw it. You know, oh, this you know little town, this mm. little art school in Mexico. And so the word got out and, you know, people hear about it. And I think even today, it's the same thing. One person recommends it to another. They go down. They see there's a lot of Americans. I would say in terms of Mexico, it's a pretty easy place to retire. It's a pretty easy place to go if you don't mm-hmm. speak Spanish well. It's an easy place to find all the services that you're used to, which isn't true in a lot of Mexico. But San Miguel is now pretty used to their expatriates and they know how to make it comfortable for people there. So that's definitely an appeal. Our guest, Julie Mead, is the author of The Moon Guidebook to San Miguel de Allende in Mexico. For another look at what's attracting expats to San Miguel, we're joined on the phone now by Father George Woodward. George recently was named rector of the St. Paul's Anglican Church in San Miguel. Father George, thanks for being with us. I love you, Rick Steves, and love the Moon Guides. So good to be a part of your program. I moved down here about a year to take the Episcopal Church, and it's a tremendous community, uh, as Julie was saying. There's always something going on. It's not just mariachi. There's classical music um, three nights a week, seven months out of the year. Uh, The opera is tied into the New York Met. There's a great jazz scene. It's a fun place to live. And uh, is there a strong American expat community that is is centered around uh, your church? Your church is called the American Church, right? Uh, It's it's an Anglican church, which is Episcopalian in the United States. About 10% of the population is Canadian or American, or some Brits as well. There's a good, lively Jewish congregation down here, mm-hmm. strong Unitarian uh, group. 
there's 152 uh, non-governmental organizations here, so not everybody's in church on Sunday. Some people are out volunteering, uh. and there's plenty of opportunity for that. It's a great town to make a contribution. When people come down here to retire, uh, many of them find that they're amping up some of their participation and their opportunities for contribution. Isn't that great? So you have a, a second act, and it can be in a second culture, and you can really make a difference. Absolutely. I see that in the lives of most of the expats down here. Hmm. They are in some ways uh, engaged and involved in the local community. Yeah, in Julie's guidebook, there's a section on volunteering in San Miguel, and you don't often see a section on volunteering in a town, but this must be a, a well-established uh, option for Americans going south of the border and becoming part of the community. People are tutoring uh, students and helping uh, kids with their English as a second language. They're working with health care issues, and they're going out into the rural areas to help the rural poor. Yeah, there are just many ways in, in which one can engage. The local community appreciates that, and there's a reciprocal health to, uh, to the Mexican-Gringo uh, relationship, I think, in, hmm. in terms of uh, the community here in San Miguel. Hey, Julie, when you think about um, the trends and so on, you've been going to San Miguel for years. Uh, what's your take on how the, the world, the environment, the cost of living, the comfort level uh, has changed in, in the last decade in a place like San Miguel, which is such a popular destination for Americans? Is it getting pretty touristy and expensive? It is. I mean, it's definitely become a lot more upscale than it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. They opened a giant resort there and there are lots of luxury hotels and fancy upscale restaurants 15 years ago that was sort of unheard of in san miguel you know mm -hmm. we, there were a couple places where you might put on a nice skirt before you went out but um nowadays there's a lot of really nice really expensive places to eat and drink but um i think that it's still affordable maybe if you look at it compared to other mexican cities certainly for a small town in mexico it's pricier than others mm -hmm. but if you compare it to a lot of places in the united states or in other parts of the world and especially with the um lifestyle that you can have in san miguel mm -hmm. and the standard of living is very high it actually seems somewhat economical you mm. know if you compare it so, i would think um, it's economical yeah. even if the price has gone up Father George, when you want to take a little break from your work and get away from the church and just get out into the town, what's your favorite little pleasure? Well, there's outside of town, there are the spas, which Julie uh, mentioned previously. I've been just a couple of times to those. I like uh, road trips. There's a good hiking area called Bernal. It's probably an hour and a half out of uh, San Miguel. When I'm in San Miguel, just you know, kicking around the cobblestone uh, streets and Having inexpensive eats or, or fancy eats, you know, you can take a group of folks out here for... I came from Pasadena to California, so the uh, the cost ratio is uh, much improved hmm. uh, for my wallet here. If two people go out to dinner and they're going to have a just a, a reasonable dinner and, and a couple of beers, what are they going to spend? You know, if you spend 60 bucks uh, at a high-end place, it's not unusual. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're just going out for tacos, it's... Uh, it's 15 bucks, I think. It's, For two people. Uh, it's so, very reasonable. So it's kind of painless. You can order where you want to on the menu. Absolutely, and the quality of the food is just superb. I mean, I, I, that was a happy surprise for me. Hmm. I came down here the first time to interview and then moved, so I didn't really know <laughs> uh, when I came, so it's just been one happy surprise after another. Oh, that's a pretty nice calling, I would say. Father George, thanks for joining yeah. us, and best wishes with your work. Hey, keep up your good work. Thanks, Rick. Okay, take care. 
And Julie, this is so interesting just to, to fantasize about going to San Miguel, either on vacation as a side trip from Mexico City or, as so many people are doing, to, to actually uh, retire there. Uh, what, what is your last advice for appreciating and getting the most out of your trip to San Miguel, D-I-N-D? I think the best thing you can do in San Miguel is to um, not worry about getting the most out of your trip and just enjoy yourself. You know, all of the beautiful sites are within a couple blocks of each other. So don't worry about sightseeing. Just know that, you know, as you walk to dinner, you're going to walk mm. past that beautiful church. And, you know, plan your days around um, doing things that are relaxing, you know, going to the hot springs, a walk outside of town. Mm. You know, I think it's it's the kind of place where you can really be unstructured. You can so you, sleep there's, in. Yeah, there's no critical museum you got to see. You're just on vacation in a beautiful yeah. town in Mexico. Exactly. Julie Mead, mm-hmm. thanks so much for joining us, and best wishes with your work, with your guidebooks, the Moon Guidebook to San Miguel de Allende, as well as the Moon Guidebook to Mexico City. Thank you so much for having me. Nos espera nuestro cochero junto a la iglesia mayor Y a trotecito lento recorremos el paseo Yo saludo tocando el ala de mi sombrero mejor Y tú agitas con don aire tu pañuelo 877-333-7425, that's our phone number. We'll explore Scottish identity in the post-Brexit UK and learn about the Olympic flame ceremonies in just a bit. But next, Frances Mays joins us for a look at the joys of eating and cooking in Italy, where she lives half the year under the Tuscan sun. It's Travel with Rick Steves. For the past 30 years, Frances Mays has been a cultural emissary connecting Americans with Italy. It all started with her now classic book, Under the Tuscan Sun. In her latest book, See You in the Piazza, Frances describes exploring the untouristed side of Italy, and that comes with some great eating. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to look at the joys of eating in Italy. Frances, thanks for joining us. Thank you. One of my favorite subjects. (laughs) Eating in Italy. Two of my favorite subjects put together. And, uh, you know, I get to travel in a lot of countries, and i got to say, there's nothing like cuisine in Italy. What is it about Italian cuisine that just is such a beautiful part of traveling there? Well, it's so varied all over the country. That's what amazes me. The food in Sicily, the food in the Dolomites, they're different, but each region has its own fabulously developed cuisine and comes straight out of the earth. So Mm -hmm. everything feels right at home and just as it should be. And eating all over Italy is just such a pleasure. You can even have good meals in the gas stations there. The auto grills, they serve good food. You know, it's that's hard so to find true. A bad meal the in auto Italy. grill, those, um, they've got on the auto, you know, the, the super highways in Italy, you've got off ramps on both sides. And then the auto grill is a modern restaurant over the freeway. And uh, the food there is remarkable. And I guess it's a compliment to the Italians that wouldn't eat there if the food wasn't good. That's right. Restaurants don't last in Italy if they're not good. They just go immediately because there's such a high standard of appreciation of food among all the population. It's not just, you know, foodies or Mm -hmm. people who can go to fancy restaurants. Everyone is a forager. Everyone has a garden if they possibly can. Everyone's at the market buying the primo produce and the best little radishes and these little violet artichokes from Calabria. Mm. People talk about it. It's fun to hear Italians get into a discussion at the market in the morning over, you know, the, the porcini mushrooms are just fantastic right now or or yes. the white asparagus and so on. 
Now, for 30 years, yes. you've had a, a sort of a love affair with Italy, but you still spend part of your time in North Carolina and part of your time in Italy. How does your eating experience in Italy affect the way you appreciate food when you're in the United States? We do a lot of Italian cooking here, but we also have a big garden in North Carolina, so we're really into kind of the freshest, you know, and the most organics. I think that carries over to both countries. Yeah. Of all the cuisines in the United States, I happen to think that the Southern is the best, uh-huh. and I grew up in the South, so it's wonderful to cook in both places, and my husband is a wonderful cook. We spend a lot of time in the kitchen but I, I must say, we were revolutionized by moving to Italy and just realizing how simple food can be and still be good. And the whole key to that, of course, is the primo ingredients that you mm-hmm. can find. So that's kind of revolutionized my thinking about food is that it's worth it to go search for the best bread, the best wine, the best of whatever you can find. And eat with the season, I suppose, is something that we can employ here in the United States with the same gusto that Italians do. Yes. Everyone in Italy is so aware of the seasons. I won't say everyone, but most everyone. You know, the spring brings the little green almonds. and mm-hmm. um, It's a festival. In the summer, everyone's out. Yeah. It's artichoke time. It's fava beans, you know, and they're just... Yes. Next, yes. Usually fava beans are now, but it's a week late this year, and we can hardly wait until they say it's okay to enjoy the fava beans. And local, too. I remember asking at the Frutte Vodura, are, are these plums local? And she said, oh, no, I'm I'm sorry. They're from Castiglione mm. del Lago, which is <laughs> five miles away. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. It gives local a, a different sort of sense. Our guest, Frances Mays, divides her time between her homes in Durham, North Carolina, and her Italian villa in Cortona, made famous in Under the Tuscan Sun. Her book, See You in the Piazza, takes us along on her culinary adventures in the small towns of Italy. It's now out in paperback. Now, in your book, you drop into tiny towns that are, to me, they must be off the the guidebook radar. I mean, there's no information there, but you always manage to find a good meal. How do you decide where to eat? Do you have any personal tips that you just can look at a place and and know if it's going to be a good experience for your meal? I keep a list going all the time when I read travel articles, see restaurants recommended in uh, newspapers. I keep a little running list, but in these towns and see you in the piazza, their restaurants aren't usually going to be in most of those lists. So I kind of follow my nose. I Mm -hmm. look at the menu that's posted outside. If it looks kind of old and dusty, you kind of don't want to go in. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of tell something about a restaurant just from, you know, looking at how it's taken care of. Is it family run? Is it popular with the locals? Or is it trying to advertise for the tourists? The other thing I do is go in the, if there's a wine store or a nice grocery store, ask the proprietor. Where do you go for dinner on a special night in mm-hmm. this town? If you just say, can you recommend a restaurant, they might tell you anything. But if you say, where do you go yeah. on a special night, you're probably not going to get directed to the tourist restaurant. You're going to get directed to someplace a local person values. Because a lot of local people would be very thoughtful and caringly sending you to a tourist place because they think you want a tourist place with all the cliches exactly. that you can, you know, you can get the summer dish in the fall or whatever. But if you distinguish, where would you go? I think that's a very good tip. Also, Francis, once you sit down, 
what is your dining strategy for a newcomer to Italian cuisine? Because in Italy, you've got the appetizers, the first course, the second course, the dolce, the sweets. You can eat family style. Uh, you talk about the importance of pasta as being like the national anthem from the food point of view. What is your general dining strategy tips for travelers? I like to order everything, so I'm probably not a good person to <laughs> ask, but I'm always researching what is the food of this area and what is the history of the food in this area. So I want to try a lot of things. But I will ask the waiter, what is your specialty? I always mm-hmm. want to know that. Usually I have from my research a few tips about things I want to try. For instance, uh, walking around in town, I know certain pastries that I know I'm going to want. And so you have a I, list, I, a, a I, little hit list of in each region of things you want to try that are most appropriate there. Yeah, I do keep a list, but I also go to the markets and look at what's for sale. Mm-hmm. Like in Puglia, I saw these little gnarly things that look like onions, and I asked what they were because all the women were just buying these things as fast as they could get them. And they turned out to be hyacinth bulbs, mm. very, very valued and only available at a certain time of year. So if you happen on those things, it's so much fun to try them. That's so interesting to me because I'm not that smart and um, curious, I guess, or well-organized with my learning. But you are constantly learning in the market, and then you take it into the restaurant that evening. I love, you wrote in your book something I just want to quote here. is about eating the Sunday lunch or the pranzo with dozens of well-dressed Italian families. Uh, and you wrote at uh, La Montanella, the restaurant you're at, it's a soul food time on Sunday, and that means pasta with young nettles, celery, asiago, saddle of rabbit with roasted peppers, grilled guinea hen with bay leaf aromas, and a 17th century recipe for young duck with fruit. The prized prosciutto of the area comes sliced to transparency. Better than it sounds is the little hen of Padua marinated in Aperol spritz. At these lavish Sunday pranzi or lunches, no one's in a hurry. This tradition continues to thrive, and why not? It speaks of our best instincts to gather with those we love and break bread. To bring that much understanding, I guess if you're a cook, you, you understand that when you sit down to a meal, but that doubles the experience, I would think, as somebody sitting down to a nice dinner in a restaurant. That was a great meal. Just you reading it made me hungry. Yeah, <laughs> me too. It just sounds wonderful. Yeah, the pranzo is still a big thing. It's Sunday lunch <laughs> in the little towns. People, you know, gather at home with the family. But more and more people go out for Sunday, the big family time, and make a very special event. That night, nobody eats dinner. They might have a slice of pizza or something. But no. right. that <laughs> tradition of the Sunday pranzo, you know, it brings back kind of old Italy. There's still so much Sunday left mm. in these Those, small towns. You know, if you've got, I've got a friend in, in uh, Umbria who's uh, in a slow food club, and their Sunday lunch is just a celebration. And I've had a few beautiful times when I sat down with them, and, and the social dimension of it, and the local tradition, uh, it's just a communion of good living. We're talking with Frances Mays, and she's helping us to explore how to cook and eat uh, like they do in Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her latest book is See You in the Piazza. In, in this book, she takes us to dozens of small, out-of-the-way towns, and she includes recipes from some of Italy's most inventive chefs at the end of each chapter. Frances and her husband also share their favorite recipes from Tuscany, in the Tuscan Sun cookbook, Recipes from My Italian Kitchen. Her website is francismaysbooks.com. 
Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Kristen's calling in from the Bronx in New York. Kristen, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Hi, hi Francis. Hi. Um, so I want to thank you for um, inspiring me for my own adventure living overseas in Italy under the Ligurian sun. I lived in Genoa for uh-huh. two years teaching at the international school, and so it was really exciting to hear that Genoa will be in the book. I never really cooked until I lived in Italy, and I would just go to the supermarket and just see these beautiful foods and made really simple things, like all that beautiful purple eggplant or just some tomatoes and mozzarella. But I was intimidated by the markets. I wanted to know if you had some advice for going to the markets and the fruit stands. I just, I never really knew what to do. Wow. I I love markets, and I know the people just absolutely love to visit and talk. So... I don't know. I've never felt intimidated there, but I guess just showing appreciation for what they have probably would kind of break the ice. Kristen, what intimidated you in the markets? I never really knew where to begin. I guess the supermarkets just seemed very familiar, and in the markets, I just, yeah, mm. I didn't know. I guess like because I'm not, oh, I didn't consider myself a cook at the time, I didn't know like what to put together for a meal. Mm-hmm. Might have felt just overwhelmed by all that is there, and what in the world do I do with it? Mm. Yes. So <laughs> uh, I think just picking up everything that looks good and taking it home and making big pasta sauce would be a good place to start. But I think it's well worth diving into those markets. Uh, Francis writes beautifully about that in, in Sea in the Piazza. I love the way you talk about the market in Catania and Sicily and all over Sicily, especially, there's this chorus of, of merchants barking about what they're selling. And just to stand in the middle and to soak up this cacophony of sound and to think it's all tied to people out, people with small refrigerators tucked under their sink, not a big freezer in the in the garage, but just a tiny refrigerator who want to go to the market every morning to connect with the merchants and to pick up what they're going to serve their family later that day. It's a beautiful ritual, I'd say. It is, and it's just fun to go because it's a medieval remnant of old market days in our town. The men in their old wool suits still gather and talk. They have not changed. It's, I think, the same men from 30 years ago still standing there talking. I love it. People still come in from the country with their market bags and do all their shopping. In uh, Volterra, I think it is the some kind of merchants, some guys that had sheep or something like that. They Traditionally, they all met right here, and now they're retired and they still do that. The market's moved on, but they still do it, and they have that momentum where they've just, this is where they gather, and this is where the conversation and the gossip happens, and as travelers, we can be right there getting in on the, on the fun. Hey, Kristen, thanks for your call, and happy travels. Thank you. Tom's calling in from Hampton in Virginia. Tom, have you enjoyed any eating in Italy lately? Oh, I certainly have. I was very fortunate. We were doing our, our roots, if you will, and my wife has a cousin in the little town of Castellamonte in um, Piemonte, just northeast of uh, Torino. And we went and spent a week there. It's a, He has a, a hotel as well as a restaurant. And oh, my gosh, hmm. what a fine chef. And uh, the name of the place was uh, Albergo Tre Re in the little town of Castellamonte. What was amazing is I don't think they saw any Americans ever before in Castle Amante. Mm. Uh, my wife went into a cheese shop, and uh, the person at the counter said, are you an American? She said, yes. And she said, we never, why are you here in Castle Amante? <laughs> so it was a great time. We, we got to connect with relatives, my wife's cousin, and eat some just wonderful, wonderful food. Although I got to tell you, uh, Francis, I am not crazy about finanziera. I don't know if you've ever had that. 
in, oh, uh, in Piemonte. I can't do that one. I have a friend from Torino who loves it. But What is it? It's a dish that has so many peculiar things in it that huh. I just can't. I mean, it's got <laughs> Sweetbreads. Oh, sweetbreads, sweet yeah. Testicles. Yeah. Yeah. Testicles. Oh, yeah. Well, Italians are good oh. at, at cooking up every little bit of the animal, aren't they? They, oh, certainly, they are. certainly are. <laughs> if you go to an old-fashioned restaurant near the, near the uh, market, uh, you're likely to find some sweet meats on the, on the specials list. Well, you were up in truffle country. Did you have any truffles? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, right. we did. We were there in September. It was just shy of, uh, but we had some. Nevertheless, he had some safe, and uh, it was just, and he also did zabione at, at our table. That was just something to behold. Now, we're talking about Piedmont, or Piemonte. It's famous for its wines. What are the famous wines from Piedmont? Oh, the Barolo. Barolo. is probably the, the best. The Barolo wine, yes, yeah. I mean, the, that is. All the little wine towns oh. are also castle towns. But it's, it's hard to magical. it's hard to put your like any marquee site or attraction. So a lot of travelers don't think of going to Piedmont. How would you describe Piedmont, Francis, for people who are considering that region of of Italy? It's up south of Milano. Yes, and near Torino. Right. I mean, Torino is Piemonte. Okay. Um, it's one of the most beautiful regions, and I think some people would say the top place to eat in Italy yeah. is Piemonte. Although some would say Emilia Romagna, some would say Tuscany, but it's up there, very scenic. The vineyards are so cared for, and it's also the area of hazelnut trees. Gorgeous They're, place to explore. It chocolate. Is. It's also Torino's the uh, where Italy was uh, was founded. Well, that would make sense because of its famous for its cuisine. Hey Tom, we got to run. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about eating in Italy with Frances Mays. Her new book is See You in the Piazza. Frances, part of Italy, of course, is the freshness of the ingredients. Part of it is the heritage and the terroir. A lot of it is the ambience. I just cannot recreate the ambience in the United States when I go to an Italian restaurant. How would you describe the ideal ambience of your one of your favorite meals in Italy. What is it about it that gives it that unforgettable travel experience? I think it's the people for me. I like a personal contact in the restaurant. I like for things to be lively and friendly. I don't like austere restaurants where you feel like, you know, you might make a mistake or there's a kind of haughty attitude that the food is served in this temple and you mm. better bow down to mm. it. <laughs> I really love the trattorias in Italy because yeah. they're usually owned by someone who deeply cares yeah. about the patrons and about the food. And the, you have a personal experience. So yeah. I would never really get very excited about a place where there wasn't a personal contact. I, when I think of restaurants, I often first think of the person who served, the person who greeted us at the door, the chef who came out. And mm. I make it a point when I am eating in restaurants to try to get to know somebody in the restaurant a little bit because I do want to speak to the chef if I can. I'd like to you know, know what their philosophy is, where they're from. Mm-hmm. where they've studied or eaten and mm. just enriches the whole process mm. of having dinner to me that it's in a context of conviviality just and listening to you i'm just all over italy I, I love that it's just that's the essence of it you nailed it there the magic ingredient is that is that passion and that love that comes with a family run 
personality-driven restaurant. Frances Mays, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, thanks for your new book. See you in the piazza. Thank you. Ciao, Rick. Ciao, ciao. Frances Mays has a new guide to what she loves most in each of the 20 regions of Italy. It's called Always Italy, and it comes out on March 31st. Our next stop is Scotland on Travel with Rick Steves. With a post-Brexit Britain no longer part of the decision-making in the European Union, there's been a lot of anxiety in Scotland over who they best identify with. After an independence referendum narrowly failed back in 2014, there's renewed speculation that sooner or later, Scotland will try it again. Joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves are two friends from Scotland to explain how the independence they favor might not be far off. We're joined by James McCletchie, who hails from a Gaelic-speaking region of the Outer Hebrides, and by Cullen Mayers, a native of big city Glasgow. Hi, Michael. Hi. James, if Scotland knew that Britain would vote to leave the EU... Do you think Scotland would have voted to stay with England back when you guys had a chance to break away? It's a very interesting uh, question. Yeah. The problem we have in Scotland is we have an identity crisis mm-hmm. within ourselves at times. There was a survey done very recently about Scots. 35% said they were Scots. Another 30% said they were Scots and British. And the rest said they were British. So we have a major problem within our country is this main source of identification. Mm-hmm. We passionately believe we're Scots. But we've also had this power pushed down upon us. Our politics have pushed us down from top, so we've been suppressed. And we feel that we're not capable of doing things ourselves. We've always dreamed high mm. and fought high. So we carry a lot of baggage around with us yeah. in Scotland. So we struggle. But independence was a dream. And I was part of that dream in Scotland. But what she, they always tell us that we lost, if you listen to unionist uh, papers and everything like that, that we lost. We did not lose the referendum. We started a motion from the grassroots within Scotland that was started by the people. It wasn't run by politicians. It was run by normal people. We got together. We were on the streets. We engaged with each other. We became Mm -hmm. politically aware. So what has happened from that referendum has been a huge victory for the people of Scotland in one Mm -hmm. sense. is that we are aware of who we are. We're aware of our country. And more than that, we're aware of what we don't want to be. But then we have to try and find a way to get to that point. So the election was not the end of the story. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a continuing organic yeah. grassroots raising awareness. It is. And I was, in a divided society that doesn't know what the right answer is. Yeah, and I was there. I was on the, the Royal Mile the day before, the day of, and the day after mm-hmm. the referendum. Uh-huh. I marched with 10,000 Scots down that Royal Mile. And what were your emotions before and after? I had never seen such an impassionment in the young people. That's all I wanted. And I walked down there... And everybody I spoke to was thrilled. They were happy. We were engaged Mm -hmm. with each other for the first time in our lives. We had a purpose. And I stood outside the Scottish Parliament the night just before of the referendum, and we were celebrating. And I stood next to an 80-year-old man, and I asked him very simply, I was young, I said, why are you here? He said, I have lived my life. I now want to give something back to my children. Mm. And the day of the referendum, and we lost, it was the saddest day of my life. Didn't London give you a little more autonomy in return for your votes to try to swing the election? And in a sense, couldn't you see a little bit of a victory in the fact that Scotland comes out of this having had the respect to vote and having more autonomy after narrowly losing? We didn't gain anything from government. It was a fake, fictitious Mm -hmm. thing that was put in the front of the Daily Record newspaper. Mm -hmm. It wasn't signed by the politicians. They hadn't done it uh, in the first place. And then when it came to give Scotland the extra powers, it was too late. And the one thing problem that we have with all of this is that 
they continually tell us that it was a once in a lifetime vote for a generation. Um, but when you, when most Scots read unionist uh, biased newspapers, they seem to be following that line. But Scotland today wants to be mm-hmm. on its own path. Huh? Now, now, Colin, so, James is from yeah. a very remote part of Scotland, mm-hmm. and you're from an industrial heart of Scotland, yeah. Glasgow. Post-industrial. Post-industrial. Is yeah. there a different angle on that, or, or what's your take from the big city in Glasgow? Well, I'll firstly start by saying that I agree with everything James has said, right. um, but I think it's important to point out that not everyone in Scotland, of course, has the same view. Right. So It's like America, we're very the, deeply divided also yeah, on yeah. important issues. Yeah, and right. with, important as well to recognise there's two different things that we're kind of going through just now. Mm-hmm. There's independence for Scotland from the United Kingdom, and then there's the, the fact that the United Kingdom is leaving the EU. So in the Scottish context, what James and I both are on the side of is for an independent Scotland as part of the EU. So we would like to see Scotland as an independent country, being able to handle its own resources and make its own decisions, but being part of that larger family of European nations. Well, so, and, and that, that's kind of the nutshell of my question. Yeah. You voted to stay with Britain that was part of the EU. Britain's yeah. out of the EU. Yeah. Scotland would rather be part of the EU, yeah. I would imagine. So I think a lot of people, when they voted in the 2014 referendum mm-hmm. on Scottish independence from UK, they thought they were voting for us a UK that was staying in the EU. Had they known it was going to be the other way, right. I'm sure they would not have, because the result in Scotland for the Brexit vote was 62% of people in Scotland said they wanted to stay in the EU. So essentially, taken from that, Scotland wants to be in the EU. So let's talk Scotland and the UK. What's Scotland's political relationship, just very briefly, uh, from a political science point of view, to the United Kingdom today? Scotland is one constituent part of the UK. So you've got Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. It's been since 1707 that we've been in that political union. So that's what we voted on in 2014. But um, ever since that union of 1707, there's been a movement for Scotland to be independent again. So it's not a new thing. People think of it, oh, it's happened in the past four years. It's It's a centuries-long struggle. Now, in the 1990s, London decided to give you your own parliament. Wasn't that an improvement? Uh, Well, I like the way you (laughs) word that. London decided. (laughs) People of Scotland decided. So, uh, So we had a vote on that, and it was 1997, the vote. 1999, the powers were handed back, and so that's devolution. They devolved some powers. Devolution. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of Scottish people want more autonomy. What are they asking for? Well, they're asking for different things on different levels, but if it was to be full autonomy, it's basically Scotland making all its own decisions. What we have just now is some powers, anything that affects just Scotland is decided in Scotland, things that affect all the UK, and the big things like defence and tax raising That's powers. That's London wants to That's keep. the big things that London retains. And so things like the wealth that comes out of Scotland's oil, I'm going back to a phrase from the 1970s here, it's Scotland's oil when it was discovered, but the oil that's off the northeast coast and then all the revenue that comes from especially scotch whiskey that is the biggest export earner i think it's something like four or five billion pounds a year for the british uh, economy uh, so that goes into the, the coffers in london in london yeah so there is an economic background to this if scotland did break away you'd have that north sea oil which would make your independent country more viable than yeah. some other countries yeah, yeah and again i'd like to make it clear that james and i are are firm believers of Scottish independence, so not everyone believes this, but I would say that right. Scotland is a very capable country. We don't need to hold, the, hold the hand of England. you know, Catalonia, Basque country mm. and so on, they have the same question, and some people kind of go to this practical, but can you really handle independence? It's mm. expensive to be your yeah. own country. To have. Well, I think we've got a history of being very intelligent, so I'm sure we can handle it, yes. We've That's invented true. lots of things, and we've got a lot of good thinkers in Scotland. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James McCutchie and Colin Mayers about Scottish identity in the United Kingdom. 
James, what, what is the Scottish identity vis-a-vis Britain? Well, can you help us better understand that? You've got to go back in our history. As I said before, we carry a very heavy baggage and a burden on our shoulders. Uh, we've had wars, we fought each other, we fought the English, and we fought for our own freedom and our own independence. And if you actually look at the other countries within Great Britain, Scotland is the only one that was never conquered in any battle, not by the Romans, mm-hmm. not by MDS. We stood up, we have the Treaty of Abroth, which was there declaring that uh, as long as a uh, hundred of us lived, that we would never accept English rule. So there is something inherent in us that we actually want and seek something better. But our identity, if you look at Scotland as a whole, as a landscape, There's people in Scotland who own 250,000 acres of land that are not Scottish. It's as if we're told that we're not good enough to own and manage our own land. Mm. Colin touched on it very briefly there about us looking after ourselves. Scotland has the largest offshore floating renewable uh, wind turbines Mm. anywhere in the world. We are now close to generating 95% of our own green electricity. That rig alone can put up to 450,000 homes. But we compare ourselves like Scandinavia. We look mm. at Scandinavia as a model. We mm. don't want to be Scandinavia. Mm. But we look at Norway, how they built. And the secret for Scotland to become an independent country or a better country is to build from the grassroots. Mm-hmm. So that you build rather than from the politics which we've been oppressed through all mm-hmm. our history from Culloden right the way down from the banning of the bagpipes, the Gaelic language and everything mm-hmm. by stripping away our identity. Whereas when you look at the Norwegians, the way they did it, this socially work together, you go there, and we don't do that. There's this emotional and this sort of uh, nationalist pride of being Scottish, and clearly you're smart enough and potentially wealthy enough to mm. be a viable independent country. Mm-hmm. Politically, if you just think of issues, you know, English people would vote a certain way, Scottish people would vote a certain way. I would think your laws, in a lot of cases, emanate from London and you are outvoted by the rest of the UK, what are a couple of issues where if Scotland was independent, it would have different laws? Well, we've always had our own laws anyway. We've maintained a lot of our own legal practice here. But one of the things that Scotland is totally against is racism. We are actually totally Mm -hmm. for uh, immigration. We are looking at the moment, there's an announcement made by the First Minister in Scotland to protect immigration because Scotland sees itself in the future as a country that needs immigration for the next 20 years. We have an aging population. Brexit is closing the door on our wonderful European people who come to our country. Scotland mm. is one of the places they want to come to. Yeah, I think Scottish nationalism as well, it's important to recognise it's a generally left of centre nationalism. So in a lot of other countries, nationalism is seen as being right wing kind of um, anti-immigration. Because Brexit Scot- is kind of yeah. a rising English nationalism, yeah. I to think. Some, to some extent, you could say maybe there's some elements of, I always argue it's not anti-English, it's just pro-Scottish. Right. And so it's maybe a, a slight disregard for English people in some cases. But would, but, you, would, you, would you say um, But most generally we're open to people from other countries to come to Scotland. Rick, mm-hmm. there's a very interesting thing that you can see at the moment that's happening with English nationalism. The English nationalism is rewriting its history. There's mm-hmm. books coming out now about English DNA. They're moving away from Dunkirk. They're moving away from everything else. So there's a huge strength in trying to recreate the English identity, mm-hmm. while at the same time they have tried to oppress the Scottish identity. And we ourselves as a nation Mm. have to look at that and how we can conform. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Fascinating discussion about Mm. Scotland's nationalism and uh, what is the relationship in the future between England and Scotland. We've been joined by tour guides James McClatchy and Cullen Mayers. If and when the day comes that Scotland is fully independent, how will life be different for you, James? For me, I want to be able to look at a country that is forward-thinking, that is no longer afraid to stand up for itself, to be a 
single nation so that I can walk down the streets with somebody like Colin and be proud to talk about my country, mm-hmm. that it actually belongs to me, mm-hmm. that I've been standing side to side with a young Scot who has a vision for the future because the young Scots are our future. And if we can take the brunt of whatever pain we get from what's happening in, in the world's moment, that to me will give us a, a beautiful, equal society mm-hmm. and one that we can be proud of and not one that we're afraid of. Yeah. And I long for the day that I can say I hold a Scottish passport. I had one situation where I was in a youth hostel and, um, and this guy says, I'm Italian, blah, blah, blah. He says to me, are you British? And I, I was tongue-tied for a second and said, well, yeah, no, yeah, yes, I am, but I'm not. I'm, I'm Scottish. You've got a British so, passport and yeah. you're Scottish. Yeah. So there are people in Scotland that want to stay in England and mm-hmm. some people see it as we're a family of nations. So I always find that they have the same arguments for that as I have for staying in the EU, that we're stronger together and it's mm. better to be a family of nations and we can get along together and we can... A united kingdom. Yeah, united. But I and see. if Scotland goes, yeah. there's going to be a snowballing uh, thing because yeah. then North Ireland will probably join the rest of Ireland. Yeah, or I think that might happen first. And then it's just England and Wales. Yeah. It's maybe the crumbling of the empire. James, what, what would you do to help us understand a pro-union Scottish perspective or, or an English perspective? It's very, very difficult to, I don't know somebody who's actually pro-union. I never met anybody, Mm -hmm. but I fully understand the arguments through history because our history has been given to us by our fathers or grandfathers who were great people who were there, they stood for the empire, everything else. But today, everything's changing. There is debate in London about does Scotland have permission to have a sovereign right to declare an independence referendum? And by taking away our sovereign right, that in itself causes a problem. So that to me is not democracy. Right. And unionism does not represent to me a democracy. Because I thought when London gave Scotland the opportunity to vote, that was respecting Scottish autonomy to a certain degree. It was to a point, but uh, there was a question that was not allowed to be in the independence vote, which was to allow Scotland to go for Devo Max, mm. yeah. which was the totally devolved powers. They would not allow us that uh, permission. That was and, my frustration. It was just all or nothing, mm-hmm. and people had to choose, and some people who really didn't want completely all had to go for nothing, nothing mm-hmm. in the middle. I think they knew that that would happen, and if yeah. that had happened, Scotland today would be in a far better place. Devo Max. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Change in the United Kingdom, change mm-hmm. in the EU, change in Scotland, change in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Let's stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. The first notes of this summer's Olympic Games get underway shortly with the flame ceremony at the ancient sites of the Games on Mount Olympus in Greece. The flaming torch will then travel around Japan before it lands in Tokyo in July to open this year's Olympic Games. Historian and guide Ioana Papakosta lives in the heart of Greece in Patras, She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to examine the meaning behind the Olympic torch. Thousands of years ago, when the Olympics were held in Olympia, there was no Olympic flame ceremony, no torch relay, nothing like that. Mm. Fire was always very important to the people. Mm -hmm. Prometheus was the one who stole the fire from the gods. He brought it to the humans. Zeus got angry with him. And there was a goddess, goddess Hestia, one of the important goddesses of ancient mythology. She was worshipped in shrines, but also every sanctuary, every home of the ancient Greek times had a hearth. She was the goddess of hearth. And in sanctuaries, the priests, they made sure that the flame was always burning. There was an oil candle, and that was dedicated to her. So that was ancient times. That was the ancient times. It was a symbol of justice. Mm -hmm. It was a symbol of equality between the people. Mm -hmm. And you know, when the Greeks established colonies around the Mediterranean Sea, They were taking a torch 
which was lit by a fire from the hearth of the sanctuary of their city, taking this flame with them all around the Mediterranean Sea. And this way they would be connected to the mother city, the metropolis. So that flame, it just connects and you can take a little bit of your home or your spiritual heartland or whatever with you. Today, the flame originates in Greece yes, for the modern Olympics. Exactly. Can you tell us about the modern of flame course, ceremony? Of course, of course. So the first modern Olympics, they were held in Athens in 1896, the official Olympic Games. From that point on, they started traveling around the world. But there was no Olympic flame, no relay, nothing like that. So there was always an idea, because in the ancient Greek times in Athens, they did organize torch relays in honor of Athena, in honor of Prometheus. So during the Games of 1928 in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. while the stadium was built, the architect, John Wills, he came up with an idea to have a big column at the stadium. Uh, a column of smoke would rise during the day and mm-hmm. a flame would burn during the night so people would know where the Olympics were held. Mm-hmm. But there was no relay, nothing like that. So years went by before the Games of 1936, Berlin. Berlin. An academic, Karl Dimm, who was in the organizing committee of the Games of Berlin, while he was in Olympia talking to others, he came up with the idea of the torch relay. They had to find a smart way, though, to make it very impressive as well. So the manager of the Museum of Olympia, Alexander Philadelphias, he came up with the idea of the mirror On the altar of the Temple of Hera, a parabolic mirror is placed facing the sun, usually at 12 o'clock midday, a few months before the beginning of the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. That mirror creates an absolute image of the sun. Mm -hmm. So there are actresses of the Greek National Theatre, and one of them is the High Priestess. She has a torch on her hands, which is not lit. She places her torch in the center of this mirror, and the torch ignites the way we start a fire with a magnifying glass. It's the same principle, exactly. So we shouldn't be calling it the Olympic flame, but the Olympic light. Because the idea was that the light of Olympia would connect every country around the world to the birthplace of the Olympic Games. That's kind of related to the fact that in ancient times, when the Olympic Games were held, all the wars would stop. Exactly. And all the the people would come together. I love that. So since then, since 1936, have they had this... Light the flame exactly in, the in same Greece. way at the exact same spot for summer and winter Olympics always takes place. It's a there. beautiful tradition. It is a beautiful tradition. Is it a technique, or supposedly the light never goes out? Well, the idea, yes, that's the idea. Uh, when Does the athletes are running, it has happened, and some people have used lighters. A lighter, really, oh, yes, so. <laughs> in several cases. But anybody got a light? <laughs> <laughs> while the athletes are running, carrying the torches behind them, there are always vehicles that have propane devices, ah. where the flame in a cauldron is burning. Mm-hmm. So even if one of the flame goes out, there's always a backup from the original flame. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Ioana Papacosta, and we're talking about the history of the Olympic flame. Ioana, thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. Efkaristo. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac kaplan Wolner, and Kaz Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Amerikitnikone, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to WUNC in Durham, North Carolina, and to Sports Byline USA in San Francisco for studio help this week. Francis Mays talks to a listener in Cincinnati about the gelato you find in Italy. You can listen to that in an extra to this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe. 
researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And Europe 101 is a full-color guide that makes Europe's history and art come alive. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks, visit our travel store. It's behind the Shop Online tab at ricksteves.com.